Thanks, Nate. So a little while ago, I was watching um, Late Night with Stephen Colbert, and I don't stay up that late, so I tape it. And so I was probably about a month and a half late on this. But the guest was a writer, journalist named Tanahisi or Tanahisi Coates, and um, I thought I felt spe specifically called out by uh, Mr. Coates because. Uh, Stephen Colbert was asking him after this great interview, and I would recommend go online and you can stream it. Uh, he asked uh, ta Coates um, if he would express some sense of hope for the country. He, he said, seems like you've had a hard time expressing hope. Do you have any hope tonight for the people out there uh, about how we could be a better country, we could have better race relations, we could have better politics? And Coates replied, just flat, no. <laughs> he says, but I'm not the person you should go to for that. And here's where he calls me out. He says, you should go to your pastor. Your pastor provides you hope. Your friends provide you hope. And I don't want to bag on uh, Coates because I think he's really pretty great and an amazing, amazingly astute writer. And... Uh, also, he's, he's coming from an angle as a trained, and he says this in interviews, as a trained journalist. And so he says, you know, a, a journalist writes an article and their editor doesn't say, so now you reported on this really awful thing. Tell me about hope. Like, what is your hope for this shooting in the street? You know, what, he says, I, I'm just reporting, just reporting the facts, and you should go to your pastor for hope. So I stand in front of you trying to talk a little bit about hope, especially the week before our Advent season of hope starts. And it seems like hope is in short supply, at least we're tempted to feel that hope is in short supply. Go on Amazon, uh, as I'm sure many of you probably were on Black Friday, and you can see that there's a book coming out in January called uh, it's even worse than you think. Like this, <laughs> this is kind of the way we think most of the time, right? But we head into Advent as a time for hope. Uh, in our worship planning meeting, we talked about how Advent is not necessarily uh, something that all of us grew up, even if we grew up in the church, that, that we grew up observing or knowing exactly what that is or how to feel about that. So a, a, a brief little backstory and primer if you're, if you're sitting there like, what is he talking about? Advent is this season just before Christmas, and it's where we celebrate the Advent, the coming of Jesus. The church calendar does this. Uh, it, it always has this runway, this walk up to these important times. So before uh, we celebrate Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection for us. We have this preparatory season of Lent, this runway of repentance and making room, especially during Advent. So we don't just try to trick ourselves into thinking like first century Jews that don't know that Jesus is coming. Uh, I, I don't think we could if we tried. We, we have the luxury of living in the aftermath of Jesus' first coming, his inaugurated kingdom and the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. We have all these tools and things at our disposal, these gifts. And so to pretend otherwise would be dismissing or suspending this reality. But 
each year we get to do this because we need to practice. We need to practice with our bodies. We need to practice with our spirits. And we need to practice remembering. As the axiom goes, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So we use Jesus' first coming as kind of a template. Because Christians are always living in between this first coming and the second coming when we expect Jesus' second advent, his coming again to judge the living and the dead, but also to renew and to bring forth the new creation. So we take note, if, if the first coming is our template, we take note that hardly anyone saw all this coming, right? Even with all those great... Uh, Old Testament scripture passages where it's like, man, Isaiah had this all laid out for us. Even some of these minor prophets saw this coming. How can we not read the Psalms and just hear these words from Jesus? They didn't really see it coming. And that should scare us a little bit, but also uh, empower us and move us into a spirit of humility and preparation as we wait for Jesus to come again. If we, if we know this Advent story, we, we know that we should focus on God's faithfulness and God's availability to really unlikely characters. Think about those Advent stories, and, and we'll be reading these guys, about how God shows up to someone like a poor, unwed teenage girl named Mary or provides this light, this revelation to the old as the hills Simeon, right? We're instructed by the fact that God appeals so well to these like ne'er-do-well roughneck shepherds, like blue-collar shepherds, but also to like foreign sophisticates, these philosophers, the magi from the east, foreigners. In short, we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, and we hope that we have eyes and we have ears tuned in to know when he's going to show up. And then that we might recognize it and then make space for God to inhabit, to be with us. And that way, Advent is no less than a season of hospitality, of making room. We talk a lot about hospitality I hope when we go downstairs after this at Potluck that you'll have hospitality on your mind and be able to practice this in small ways by making room beside you, making room uh, next to a family or inside of your family for someone else to, to come and be with you, making room for God to enter in through those relationships. We sing this expectation in our Advent and Christmas hymns, let every heart prepare him room so we hope that we can carve out time and space in our lives for Jesus to enter in and make his home. That's what Advent's all about. To some of us, even that though, like we get that concept, but the idea of inhabiting time this way might be a little new, right? Let me suggest that it makes sense to mess with our time because God messed with our time when he entered in in Jesus. 
God, God messes with our time. So it's not about being a stickler of when it's acceptable to start playing Christmas music and decorate trees. Like it's about messing with and recalibrating and resetting our like internal and spiritual clocks towards something bigger than just shopping season or like the span between Halloween when it starts to be a little more socially acceptable to eat peppermint things and decorate for Christmas. Um, instead, we, we have our clock reset because God entered into time and space in order to redeem it all. So this is something far deeper, and we'll do this with our kids. And in a couple of weeks, we'll have our kids pageant, and after pageant, the kids will go downstairs and they'll make birthday cookies for Jesus. And I think that's a great way to celebrate this with kids, celebrating Jesus' birthday. But for grown-ups, I think this is something a little deeper than just celebrating Jesus' annual birthday. When we start to observe Advent, we realize that our year is starting. Our lives are starting. The life of the world is starting over. A new family is being born. Something far more massive and cosmic is happening than just Jesus' birthday party. So I draw some inspiration for that. We, we actually did decorate our Christmas tree the other day because we're going out of town. And I draw some inspiration from those cheesy, like, Christianese ornaments that say, a baby changes everything, you know? Because I think what they mean is Jesus, right, changes everything. And Jesus is the reason for the season. And my, my initial thought is, yeah, sure, babies do change everything, like sleep patterns and schedule and your financial future and, and your ability to hang out with friends and things like that for the indefinite future. Babies change everything. And I think that's true, but I also think that's true in a very different way. So like when Paul entreats us to hope this way, in Romans 15, he uses words that are, are a little less like touchy-feely. He uses words like endurance, <laughs> even as he also uses a word like encouragement. He, he tells us, actually, uh, in this passage, to get our hopes up, but that it will be hard, and it will be dark, and it will be impossible and so we'll need endurance. He also tells us that we'll lose our vision and our understanding of what the end will even be or look like, and for that, we'll also need encouragement. So we've been given the scriptures, we've been given a history, we've been given each other. We need in both endurance and encouragement. It's a little different than, than just like a shopping season, right? Uh, that's a little different way to tell time. One of the friends of the church, uh, Professor Christina Cleveland, talks about Advent this way. She says, Advent is an invitation to plunge into the deep, dark waters of our worst world, knowing that when we resurface for air, we'll encounter the hopeful, hovering spirit of God. For when we dive into the depths of our worst world, we reach a critical point at which our chocolate and pageants no longer satiate our longing for hope. 
and we're liberated by this realization. Indeed, the light of true hope is found in the midst of darkness. This is entering into life with God who has entered into our reality. The same God throughout the fall whose presence we've been meditating on with that Psalm 139 over and over. We'll do it during our confession. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. This is the same God through whom the restored garden city, this is Revelation 21 and 22, won't even need a sun or a moon because God will be our light. This is the light that we come out of the darkest dark of our worst world and and we see breaking in on us, maybe even just a crack or a sliver. In this most immediate season, Rach and I are experiencing this kind of hope uh, in a little different way in this, this current season of adoption leading up. And we've had, like Noah was born in December, so we've had the kind of the Advent baby where you prepare and make room and get ready for the birth and you see the, the belly growing and, and it, it's, it's very in front of you and it's very obvious, but this current season has been quite different for that, as many of you guys know. Many of you know uh, because you've walked with us through this ongoing journey and you know how bitterly disappointed we were a few months ago when the little girl that we were hoping to parent ended up through circumstances beyond our control not happening. (laughs) They call this a quote-unquote disrupted adoption is uh, the official terminology for it. You see like the births of our three children we spent most of this year making room for this little girl. This is involved for us both making room in time and space, like setting up a nursery and re-baby-proofing our home, even though like nothing is ever baby-proof. Uh, making financial plans and making plans for uh, my parents and Rachel's mom to come and be with our kids and making plans for uh, church stuff to be covered. And we, we've made all these plans and we've made all this room. And so I think that's why in Romans 15, the, the, the kind of flow and the kind of weight in the passage moves straight from hope, straight towards hospitality. It talks about this hope that's forward-facing and preparing and getting ready and that we're looking for and that we're hoping for and that we're stretching and striving for. Emily Dickinson says hope is a thing with wings because you can't hold it very tight and it might fly away. And then it goes on and says, welcome each other welcome each other. And that's what we've spent most of this time doing is trying to welcome, making room, being hospitable, and you guys have been doing that with us. But then we have this disruption, (laughs) this disrupted adoption. And there's, for us, it was, it was, without being kind of overly dramatic here, it really was kind of a plunge into darkness for us. It was a a radical departure from our hopes and expectations. But in that radical departure, in that disruption, we're met with encouragement from y'all primarily as instruments and hands and feet of Jesus, but also from the Lord and from scripture and from songs and from emails and text messages. Encouragement from the Lord who's heard our cries 
knows our hurt, our betrayal, our longing, knows our hearts which want what is best for this little girl, even if she's not our daughter. And I think all of this, I'm getting kind of autobiographical here, I think all of this is what's at stake when you hope. When you hope, hope can be disrupted, necessarily. Because it's outside of you, it's in a forward-facing future that doesn't exist yet, and it might be disturbed, and it might be disrupted, and it might even feel like it's being destroyed. And then, after this disruption, and I won't even pretend like this has happened immediately, and it's also happened kind of um, at the same time, in the same space, uh, coexisting with us, this disruption has actually helped us learn how to have our hopes reconfigured. You see, hope isn't really a, a straightforward endeavor. It's often really messy and delayed. It's often a product of the mess and delay and a complex tangle of imperfect circumstances and even imperfect resolutions. And there's sin and there's irreversible realities and there's big kind of institutional frameworks and there's powers and principalities thrown all in there and it's this tangle like you know when you watch a cartoon and they wrestle and it's just this cloud with limbs like sticking out everywhere that's what a little bit of what it feels like to hope is just this mess but we hope we and we don't stop hoping and we hope for healing we hope for wholeness we hope for peace god's shalom to reign so hope can also be reconfigured. All those limbs can kind of straighten out and sort out. Throughout the season of preparing for adoption, I've noticed myself reading scripture a little differently for this. You see, when you're preparing to make a family in a new way, bringing in someone who's not blood but counting on the Lord to make them perhaps even more family because of this. You notice all the times when scripture encourages, it, it, it speaks encouragement about the inclusion of Gentiles. And that's something I totally gloss over, not to mention the fact that I am a Gentile, right? So that's something we should be pretty stoked about, guys, this encouragement towards Gentiles of being part of God's people. But when it's talking about, and our scripture today talked about it, when it's talking about um, Gentiles being a part of God's family, hope for Gentiles and Gentiles being able to hope in, in God this way, it's talking about it, and maybe not in as specific of language, but Paul uses this language elsewhere. It's talking about adoption. It's talking about being brought into a family in a, in a new and unnatural way. Paul uses uh, language in early in Romans, of receiving this spirit of adoption so that we can cry, Abba, Father. Or uh, uh, also in, uh, earlier in Romans, it talks about the, all of creation groaning for, you know, groaning like a, a woman ready to give birth, waiting for this new creation to come about, to be born in and among us these outsiders and the promises and privilege of God's people might be made full sons and daughters. That's the story. 
It's a story that we need to remember and reenact. Scripture today says, I will confess you among the Gentiles. And the word for Gentiles is ta ethne, the nations. Different languages, different skin tones, different everything. Rejoice, Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And then he says, there will be, and this is from Isaiah, there will be a root of Jesse. The Gentiles will place their hope in him. So that jumps off the page of me to me in a new way that I haven't normally read scripture. And I think this thread is what causes uh, this writer, Kelly uh, Nikandeha, to refer to adoption as a sacrament of belonging in a fractured world. And if sacrament, if that language kind of freaks you out, that is just like an intangible, um, or like a tangible outward sign of an inward kind of intangible grace that, that Jesus has instituted. Something that we can put our hands on and, and even as we gather around this table, consume that reminds us of this massive spiritual reality that's maybe even more real than what we count as reality. This, of course, uh, when you get into this territory, adopting someone or being adopted, of course, doesn't solve all the problems of the world. It actually, you might find, creates a new set of problems how just now, just how now we're going to create a new family and, and we're doing this because we're trying to move towards wholeness and healing. We don't have now the easy markers of blood, race, religion, ethnicity, history to fall back on. How are we going to make a family if, if those easy things aren't in play anymore? And that often freaks us out. I'm not sure if, if we don't have some sort of like rough-hewn, light-out-of-the-darkness, resilient, forward-facing hope in Jesus, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to do that very well. Because the tension is often too much to handle, so the challenges feel like they're too much to overcome, and we're doomed to fall back on what's easy or familiar, so that's why we always try to go towards people that look like us or act like us or think like us, because the tension just kills us. It drives us nuts, so we try to resolve the tension. But let me suggest that's exactly where the endurance piece comes back in. That we're not being asked to resolve this tension. We're just asked to endure, to merely stick in there. That's actually my philosophy of parenting, too, is just like stick in there. They're littler than you. You can outlast them, right? But you stick in there, right in that tension, you hope that the Lord will resolve, will intervene, will give us the resources that we need when we need them, because our God is never caught off guard by the sin and suffering and needs of this world, and our God is never without the resources to come to our aid. That's what it's like to start messing with a God who is abundant and eternal and just love <laughs> that overflows with this love towards his creation. So this Advent hope kind of begs us to forge this sort of both nor reality. And this is kind of, I'm sorry if this is a little unclear concept. This is something that I'm kind of like, it's a little incomplete in my head. It's wet concrete and I'm working on. 
this idea of a both nor reality is, is really exciting to me, even as it's really strange. We're used to both and or neither nor. This means that there's more, enough, more than enough room for God to create and recreate and bring about a new family for both Jews and Gentiles that both the kids that Rachel and I have watched grow in her belly and who Titus refers to lovingly already as new baby, quote-unquote new baby, that we've prepared room for from afar, both of them can be equally our family. Or for you, this might mean that both your gifts, your passions, your desires, your abilities, those things are, that are exactly you, and those of your friend or your partner who you're trying to live with, like both can coexist and, and neither needs to be muted or destroyed. Or this means maybe like culturally that, that the flir like our flourishing and the flourishing of someone that is not like us, who's maybe a different race or background or ethnicity or language group or gender, um, both can flourish and coexist. But then the neither part means that a hopeful future doesn't belong to anyone but God. That, that for this to happen, there's no shortage or zero-sum game or lack where for this to happen, eventually someone's got to win and someone's priorities take, uh, take control. This means that we don't have to control because it's not going to be how we thought it was going to be or how we drew it up and thank God for that. For good readers of scripture, we realize that all of this ends with the nations, again, ta-ethne, gathered around the throne singing praises to the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Not exactly the end anyone had in mind, but also the only way that can hold all of this together, the only way that can heal creation. This nor means that our family will be changed by adoption, and that is really scary because you always kind of like the thing that you have and you know, and the thing that you don't have and don't know is really scary because you don't, you don't know and you can't control it. But the nor says we will be changed, probably for the better, we're hoping, also probably for the harder, because of a lot of different realities that we're taking on. This norm means that you'll spend most of the days of your life figuring out the dance of how to bring all of yourself into your relationships without trying to control someone else. That your gifts and the gifts of your partner or spouse can, can interlock and interweave and sometimes even counteract each other or counterbalance each other and that's okay because you don't have to be the same person this nor for our society means that there's always more than enough, even though it doesn't feel like it. And that we're just going to spend most of our times as Christians choosing to believe that this world runs and is the way God says it is and not the way that it feels or the way that we're being told that there's not enough. That our flourishing is bound up in our neighbors and that God is going to provide even when it doesn't feel like the Calvary is coming, right? The only thing that we can then control is our ability to repent and to trust that God is making things new. That God is pouring new wine into old skins and bursting them so that we need new wineskins. This is the disrupted and reconfigured hope 
happening at the same time, overlapping. But neither is the final word. Something new is. Something new is. This is, this is why um, I can say that, that for, for, for Rachel and I, we've, we've then, a few weeks after that gut punch, and you guys know this story mostly, we got the call that we had been rematched, matched with a different mom, this time in another state, this time with a boy. That's why you probably won't see us for the next couple weeks because we have a good reason. We're not just sleeping in. That's where we'll be. But we're going to go with fear and trembling. Not because we're not excited. We're crazy excited. Because we know that God is at work, and that work sometimes looks like disruption, mostly looks like reconfiguration, and this stuff can happen simultaneously. Just because we got rematched doesn't mean that first disruption isn't still hurting, that we're not still thinking about and praying for that girl, and that she won't always be part of our hearts because we've given that to her. And so as we read these Advent stories, I, don't, I won't speak for Rich, but I would like to be someone as heroic as Mary or someone like Simeon or Anna or someone in that nativity story who seems so stinking locked in on what God is doing and how and when. That they, 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 do you know how absurd the Annunciation story is? Like, you would get woke up by God saying to do that and you'd say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Let's do it, right? <laughs> it's nuts. More likely, though, I think me and, and we collectively, and probably y'all included in that, are going to be sort of like Joseph in this story. <laughs> Joseph had to get woken up a few times also, but I personally identify. But Joseph if we need a refresher, it's Jesus' adopted father, adoptive father, who comes alongside of Mary in quiet and humble and steadfastly supportive ways. Joseph purposed to shield Mary from shame. Joseph's role in the story was to steward this baby. The baby happened to be the word made flesh who came to dwell among us, steward that baby in all of Jesus' complexities. If you want to know about Jesus' complexities, do a little patristic reading on the first few centuries when they try to figure out just how he's God and man in one body. And Joseph was his dad. <laughs> Joseph took that on with all the endurance that it would require and with all the encouragement that Jesus would provide. Joseph chose to join in the pain of God the Father in relinquishing his co-eternal child. Think about how hard it must have been for God to send Jesus, let alone to the cross, but just to send him out to have someone else be his parent. Joseph chose to have his family's dynamic drastically changed. Certainly for the better, we would, we would say in hindsight, but also for the harder. By the presence of the adopted one. The presence of Jesus. I doubt Joseph considered that he was opting into a life that would culminate in both the deep grief and hardship of seeing his son suffer on a cross 
or that he would opt into also the overwhelming joy and victory of the resurrection. But he'd be able to do all of that when the time came because he was making these small, manageable Advent choices along the way, these simple, hopeful decisions to make room in this world for a child. Thank you guys for doing that with us. And may the God of hope fill fill you all with all joy and peace and faith so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that while we benefit from the serious and disturbing and maddening and saddening reports that don't lend us much desire or or lend us much uh, wishing for hope that instead um, we can take those seriously, that those realities and those hurts and sufferings, and we can, we can still hope. And when our hopes and our expectations are dashed and destroyed and completely derailed, we thank you that you are part of that disruption, but also part of that reconfiguration. Lord, we thank you that with you there's more than enough, more than enough resources for us, more than enough forgiveness, more than enough room in our families and in our lives. Let's be the sort of people who are risky enough to hope, have endurance enough to make room, and are encouraged in this journey. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.